Thanks for listening to the podcast of First Alliance Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. For more information about our church or to watch a video recording of today's message, visit us online at facws.org. I invite you all to turn your scriptures to Luke chapter 11. We encounter the next part of the Lord's Prayer. And I reiterate that this is in Luke, and that Luke provides a different emphasis, a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer. And last week, we saw that in the first two phrases, Father, holy is your name, or hallowed be your name, that he created a parallel to that in the last sentence of this section of Scripture, where he tells us to ask the Heavenly Father for the Holy Spirit, who will give it in abundance. These parallels are very intentional, and I hope that you'll see more today. The next section says, Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Now you'll note that that's different than Matthew. Whenever we would say the Lord's Prayer, you know when I said it most growing up of all places was before a football game. You kind of kneel down as a football team and you'd say it. And so it's burned into your head the traditional, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's in Matthew. And what Matthew does with that version is clarify what your kingdom come means which is that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the context of Matthew, that was very important because Matthew is a book principally written to a very Jewish audience. So much so that the word kingdom of heaven was actually shorthand for the kingdom of God, as we would read in the book of Luke, because to the Jewish person, they would use the word heaven instead of the word God frequently when referencing God's kingdom. Well, Luke doesn't do that because Luke's principal audience is not the traditional Jewish audience that Matthew had. And he wants his audience to understand kingdom in, I think, a little bit more fuller and simpler sense than what Matthew presents in his Jewish audience. When he says, your kingdom come, think about what that would have meant to perhaps a little bit more highly educated, broader Roman or Greek audience than just the Jewish audience that would have understood perhaps the more religious sense of God's kingdom. What, after all, is a kingdom? Well, if you ever watch historical dramas or you read any sort of history or you engage at all in, in uh, you know, fantasy novels even, you get an idea of kingdom that involves what? Swords and shields and armor and armament and generals and, and fighting and intrigue and political conflict and, and castles. You ever been to a castle? They're pretty amazing. One of my favorite things about castles is you'll wander. One of my, we went to a castle in Scotland about four or five years ago, and we were wandering about, and they're saying, well, this part of the castle was built such and such thick, and it, and it took these 50 years to complete this part of the castle. And then they, in, in a matter of four months, invented a weapon that could already defeat this castle. So they had to add this much more to the castle to make it great. Why? Because one of the functions of kingdom is that it is constantly at war. 
If you mention a kingdom in the context of human history, inevitably you're mentioning something that was bought at the price of conflict. Why do I say that? Why do I highlight that? Because one of the functions of Jesus' death on the cross, one of the things that it accomplishes for us is that a new kingdom is ushered in as a triumphant king conquers. When we say your kingdom come, we're saying Jesus is king and there is none other and his kingdom has conquered and none other reigns. We're heralding the marching triumphant procession of God's people. It's not just that we would do the will of God. It's not just that we would follow obediently like the angels do, which is what Matthew tells us with your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that Jesus has won. He won the battle. His kingdom is conquered. And what has it conquered? Well, Luke will continue to unpack that. But look backwards from Luke 11 to what we've already seen what the kingdom has conquered. And what is that? Death, darkness, sickness, demon possession, anger, sorrow, hunger, and disease. This is a prayer that opens the door for us to call down the power of God over the greatest powers that mankind has ever known. Nothing has robbed more human life than disease. Do you know that even in war, when men would shoot at each other or stab each other with swords or shoot arrows or whatever ways that we've done conflict through the years, that the vast majority of people that died because of war didn't die because of the wounds that they received, but because those wounds became infected and pestilence and, and disease and, and, and bacterial infection would take over and rob us of life. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're praying God's healing power on the earth. What about the roots of war and conflict? We know from Revelation, the picture of God's kingdom, where there is no sorrow, no anger, no fear. Those things which cause fights among us, jealousy, hatred, anger, a will to power, all those things are gone when we claim your kingdom come as well. And then, of course, there's death itself. I could get very technical with this, but there's two main ways of understanding the death of Jesus on the cross. One of the main ways, and I believe I've given you this, this before in different ways, but one of the main ways is what we call the forensic model or the judicial model of understanding that Jesus took our sins on the cross and in doing so, we are freed from our sins as his blood covers us and he has defeated death. And that's a very prominent model in a lot of what you'll read out of the Protestant Reformation, particularly in the Calvinistic or Presbyterian tradition. But the other model that is of utmost importance and permeates all of Christian history and indeed the scriptures is what we call the, the motif of Christ the victor. 
or Christus Victor, as they say in Latin. And that model reveals to us, and it permeates the language of the New Testament, and I can unpack it in future sermons. It's not the point of this sermon, though, but I want you to be aware of it. The point of that way of understanding the cross is that when Jesus took our sins on the cross, it was not just our sins which died with him, but in his resurrection, in his going down and and facing death, And squaring off with hell itself, he defeats those things, conquers them. And that is why Paul can say that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That it's not just what Jesus has done on the cross, but what Jesus is doing in our lives that marks that the kingdom has arrived. You are the kingdom. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying, Lord Jesus, make us into your kingdom. Conquer in us and through us the principalities and powers of darkness which reign over this earth right now. It's a pretty amazing banner call, isn't it? It's a bugle sounding forth. March. But notice how simply he connects it to the humble next phrase. Give us each day our daily bread. Your kingdom come, an expansive vision of God's reign over the earth in us as his people is matched with give us our daily bread. Bread. In the Middle Eastern context, our daily bread was how you lived. You baked your bread daily. They didn't have the stabilizers and didn't have the methods of preparation that we might have. You had a heated fire and you would cook your bread over that pretty much every day. The only day that you wouldn't would be on the Sabbath, and that meant the day before you had to really make extra. Give us this day our daily bread connects with your kingdom come in a very critical way, which I'm going to unpack for the rest of this sermon. But the first thing to notice is in the context of your kingdom coming, Jesus ruling over the earth, We put ourselves in a position of submission to him like soldiers do on the battlefield who get their food from the military daily. Now, I've not had to suffer through eating a lot of MREs, but I'm sure Fred has. And maybe some of the rest you have as well. And I've heard they're just absolutely scrumptious. (laughs) But when you serve in the military, you get what the cook puts on your plate. And when you're out in the battlefield, you pull from your bag and you heat up whatever the MRE is that you've been rationed. Give us this day our daily bread could be a connection with, and indeed I think it is a connection with your kingdom come, because it's saying that your provision is all that I seek because I'm your soldier and your servant in your kingdom. Whatever you give me has to be good enough because it is what you have given me. It's also a connection back, and I want you to think thematically to what his audience would have known, at least in and around Judaism, to the exile period of the nation of Israel. 
where for 40 years, God's people wandered the wilderness. And every single day, except on Sunday, they would have to gather up this thing that literally, the word we use is manna, but the actual translation is, what is that? That's the whole translation of the word manna. They would gather up the stuff and they would compile it, press it, cook it, and that was their daily bread. Every single day except for the Sabbath for 40 years. And so it's a hearkening back to remember this is who you are and where you came from as well. A forward-looking, your kingdom come. A backward-looking, here's how God has provide. And therefore, a daily practice. How do we flesh that out, though? We need to pause and flesh this out. And to do that, we need to get a little personal. This week, a report came out about Robbie Zacharias. Robbie Zacharias was a huge part of my upbringing in Christianity. I read all of his books. I watched all of his videos. He was part of an early movement called the Veritas Forum, where at Harvard University, they brought in Ravi to present to hundreds of students the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of the Veritas Forum came a movement that went on all college campuses. And so when I was at Duke University, I was part of bringing on speakers to our campus. And Ravi was busy at the time. We couldn't get him. But we got other amazing Christian speakers that were able to come and in a very philosophical and erudite way share the gospel. So big was Ravi during my college years that I frequently would use his teachings as my Sunday morning or rather my two o'clock Sunday service because I would never quite get out of bed in time to join my friends going to church. And he was an ordained alliance minister since his youth where he started in Canada as an alliance pastor. And this week, the Alliance had to posthumously strip him of his licensure because a report came out about years of him taking advantage of women, of even bringing some from foreign countries to the United States, of using money that was given to his nonprofit, the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which people thought might have been used for hospitals and evangelistic ministry to put these women on the payroll of his organizations as his personal masseuse. It came out that he had apartments in Bangkok, Thailand, where he would carry on this sort of thing. And worse, he carried with him as a reminder pictures of all those that he had taken advantage of in his phone. Over 200. How do we process that? How does that fit with what I'm saying here? Your kingdom come, give us this day our daily bread. Well, one of the women who was interviewed by the law firm doing this investigative report said this, that when Robbie was with me, he would say to me, I deserve this from my years of ministry. And you better not tell anyone about or millions of people will lose their faith. I deserve this. 
If there's one pernicious thought, one wicked thought that can filter in and absolutely ruin our spiritual lives and our prayer lives especially, it is that thought, I deserve this. That sense of what we would call entitlement in the kingdom, in ministry, and in our lives. I deserve is the opposite of your kingdom come. I deserve is the opposite of give us this day your daily bread. Because what give us this day your daily bread does is it teaches us that whatever we receive is what God wanted us to receive. In other words, the outcome belongs to God because it is from God. Your kingdom come is the opposite of I deserve because it teaches us that the method of God achieving those outcomes is also His. It's His to determine what our lives are worth and then to give us that value. We don't get to define it. We don't get to say this is going to happen and here's how it's going to happen. We don't get to say, I've worked hard enough for you, Lord, therefore things should look like this. And if they don't, I'm not going to do it the way you want me to do it. I'm going to do it the way that I think it should be done. I deserve ruptures families, ruins marriages, destroys the relationship between parents and children. You know what Sylvia said this week? Had me thinking about it all this past week. She said, I had Michael, her son, who attacked her. I had him, so I have to love him. He did not have to love me. He didn't get to choose me as his mother. She didn't deserve what she got from him. But she still loves him. Now, she very easily could flip that around now, couldn't she? And we would all think her right to say, well, I didn't deserve to be treated like this. I don't love that boy anymore. I'm done with him. Cut him off entirely. That's not what she said. She didn't say, I deserve to be loved. She said, I have to love. If we go here to your kingdom come and give us each day our daily bread, it puts us in the place of accepting that God's outcomes are good enough and his methods will do it. His outcomes are good enough. They are his. They are holy. They are blessed. He is good to us and he achieves those outcomes according to his purposes and plans for us and for this world in his time and not in ours. Put it another way, an awful way, and we don't want to think like this, but we have to. We have to understand if a man like Ravi Zacharias does all the terrible things that he does and says to one of the women that he's taking advantage of, this is my reward, guess what? He has achieved the fullness of his reward. 
Meaning there's nothing more for him because he got what he wanted. Instead of God's kingdom, he wanted what he got. And that's all he's going to get. Now that's a hard thing to say about somebody that I looked up to and that we looked up to. And I don't know the status of his eternal soul, but I can tell you that the Lord teaches us that even one of us leads one of these children away. It would be better if a millstone be hung around their neck and they be tossed into the ocean than they be be allowed to continue to do what they do. When we say, I deserve, we get what we deserve. Just this week, one of the most prominent prosperity preachers of the 1970s passed away. And he used to drive up to his massive 10,000-seat auditorium, the largest church built at the time, in his Rolls Royce and say, I'm walking in the feet of Jesus. He got what he has deserved because that's what he wanted. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. If you were to stop the bus full of people on their way to hell and interject in their lives and say, wouldn't you rather go the opposite way in obedience to the kingdom of God? They would say, no, we're going where we want to go. Your kingdom come means we crave for something that is not ours And that we can never fully achieve on our own power. Which brings us to the final phrase. Forgive us our sins. And we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. When we believe that the outcome is the Lord's. And the method of achieving that outcome is also the Lord's. In other words, his kingdom will give us our daily bread to achieve his glory. Then it frees us to both be forgiven and to forgive. Ravi Zacharias fundamentally could not have believed that he could be forgiven or forgive others. Or he would not have continued that pattern for decades. I don't believe that. When I'm wrong, which is often, I expect you to tell me. And I will do the same for you because in doing so, I can forgive you and you can forgive me. When I sin, I need you. I need you to say no. And when you do it, we need to say to you, no. So that we can forgive and be forgiven. The idea that we are all sinners, that is so plainly evident all throughout scriptures for none for for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God there is none righteous not even one Paul would say in Romans that idea is the most freeing thought in all the universe do you know why that is because I don't have to be a respecter of persons 
I don't have to kiss up to any one of you. And you don't have to kiss up to me. It would be nice if you tried it every once in a while. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. But I'm just saying, you don't have to. Why? Because I'm a sinner through and through. The only virtue and value that I have in the kingdom of God is imputed to me by Jesus Christ. I bring nothing into the equation except what he already gave me. I didn't deserve to be born. I don't deserve to breathe my next breath. Nothing that I have is deserved. And that's so freeing. It's so freeing. I mean, the facade that that man bore for decades of, of seeming to be perfect, but actually being a miserable cretin must have been exhausting on a daily basis. He was already living his own personal hell. I don't have to do that. Because, man, when I sin, and my wife tells me, and she does a good job of it, and, and I do a good job of it to her. When we do that, she says, cut it out. And I go back to the cross and I'm forgiven anew. And she forgives me and I forgive her. And, and that's why we're still married. And that's why I'm still a pastor. And that's why Jesus is still good. There's no other reason. None, none, none. And it sounds like I'm shouting today. It's because I am. It's because it's all we got, guys. It's all we've got. There's nothing that forms the basis of the kingdom of God other than our forgiveness based on the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross. Amen. Nothing else. Our budgets could go away. This building could go away. Our very lives could go away. And God is still good and his kingdom still reigns forever. Now, if you believe that, you got to let it change how you live your life. You gotta walk in the pathway of the end of the Lord's prayer that we forgive, that God forgives our sins. How? Because we confess them, and that we forgive other people. How? Because we confess our sins to each other. In other words, if some one of you were to come to me and say, Pastor, I've done such and such, I not go, ah! life has ended. I'd rather say, do you confess your sins to Jesus Christ? Do you repent and turn away? Do you seek a new life in him? And if you say yes, then all the glorious options of the kingdom are once again available to you. People were shocked when I was a youth pastor and a kid would come in and tell me something and I would be in a counseling session. A kid would come in and say, oh, I use drugs. And I would just be totally like, okay. And the parent would be like, what do you mean okay? How can you just be so calm? How can you just sit there while this child explains everything terrible to you? Why? Because I know what I've been forgiven. I know how bad of a sinner I am. I can't hold an anvil over the head of these kids, assuming that they're going to be better than me. What a ridiculous notion. What, what a vile thing to impute on our kids expectations of perfection that we alone can't follow ourselves. That's horrifying. Are we saying that Jesus didn't need to die for them? No, he really needed to die for them. And so when they confess, we say, have you accepted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess your sins, 1 John tells us he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. For decades, dear church, I think that the Christian church in America has talked a great deal about the need for holiness. 
but has not talked a great deal about the sins that we all commit that get in the way of holiness for which Jesus came to die. And perhaps if we'd follow Luther's advice, Luther said, if you're going to sin, sin boldly. In other words, when you sin, know that you sinned so that you know you're forgiven. He's not saying go do worse stuff, but he's saying don't pretend that sin isn't sin. Speak your sins to each other. Let each other know how you're starving for the forgiveness of Christ. How much pressure you bear hiding your sins from each other. How much anger rises up because you're not perfect and yet you think you should be. You're wasting your time and your energy if you don't. More importantly, you're not saying your kingdom come. You're saying, I'm going to form a moat and a boundary around my kingdom and my heart. You're saying your daily bread isn't good enough, that I'm going to sustain myself by pretending to be perfect when in fact I'm miserable. And worst of all, you're saying I'm not worthy of being forgiven or I'm too good for forgiveness, both of which are terrible sins. When Jesus says, pray like this, your kingdom come. Give us this day your daily bread. Forgive us our sins and help us to forgive the sins of others. By praying this Lord's Prayer, we are admitting that we need all of the things we're praying for. We need the kingdom of God. We need his daily bread. We need to be forgiven. We need to forgive others. And that last phrase, and I'll end with this, is, and lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. You ever think about Jesus teaching us to pray that? That he himself was led by God into the worst possible temptations which none of us could have possibly endured. He was literally shown all of the nations of the world and offered them all forever by Satan. After 40 days of not eating, he was offered bread. I dare say after four hours of not eating, many of us would stumble on that front. Lead us not into temptation. Is Jesus identifying with us in his humanness and our humanness? That it is easy to fall. That we need the Lord to shield us even from temptation. He doesn't just say, lead us not into sin. In other words, Jesus, don't let us sin or God, don't let us sin. He's saying, lead us not into temptation because Jesus himself recognizes how easy it is for each one of us to fall. And so we need to pray that the Lord not even allow the preconditions to come along that would enable us to stumble. What a gracious moment of teaching that Jesus gives us. He doesn't say, and Lord, make them perfect. He doesn't say, pray that you would never sin. He says, pray that the Lord in your battle with sin would be good to you in preventing you from sinning more and more and worse and worse. Eradicate the preconditions that would put you in the place of rejecting the kingdom and the daily bread that form the sustenance and the purpose that God has given you in the first place. Let's draw this home with some easy and direct applications. 
first of all, pray this prayer. It's a very short one. You could pray it every day. Jesus at the end of his high priestly prayer, which is some four chapters in the book of John, didn't say, now you pray this every day. That would have been tough. He gave us like a five-line, easily memorizable prayer to pray. Pray it every day. That's a simple one. Number two, when you pray it, stop every once in a while and just think about the meaning of one of the lines. You don't need to think about the meaning of all of the lines, but just meditate on throughout the course of the day. Give us today our daily bread. What does that mean today, Lord Jesus? How am I trying to scrape for myself up a feast when you've provided for me something greater? That might be an example. The third, and this is critical, Confess your sins, even to each other. Now, I understand that's not an easy thing if you're not in relationship. And so you might need to build the preconditions for that moment. You might need to start being together with people on a more regular basis to where you can look them in the eye and say, I struggle with this. So maybe what you need to do is get into a small group or into a group of three or four people that you start to form a network of trust so that you can even say, here's how I've sinned. Here's how the Lord has forgiven me. But do it. Do it. If you say, well, COVID's stopping me, I will buy you a Zoom membership. But do it. Lord Jesus... We take seriously your word when the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And you taught them that we need to pray this. And we take seriously the prayer, which tells us when we pray it, that you are our heavenly father, whose name is holy, and you want to give us good gifts. And so when we ask you, you give us the Holy Spirit. And we take seriously the prayer that when we receive the Holy Spirit, which is your good gift, that your kingdom arrives in our hearts and begins to work in us righteousness and goodness and joy and all the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit become manifest. And then you have us sustained every day by your daily bread your word, your spirit, your purposes in our lives. And when we stray, you've provided for us the pathway of restoration in your forgiveness. Let us see the awful and miserable example of somebody like Ravi Zacharias as a reminder of each of our need to go back to you daily in prayer, lest we become unmoored from our source, our rock, and our salvation. In your name we pray.